wondered how taboo, shame, and lack of good sexual education have stripped away elements of pleasure in childbirth and parenting that are essential to loving, intimate relationships? Join me for another episode of Orgasmic Birth Podcast, Pleasure in Pregnancy, Birth, and Parenting, as we break down and heal barriers and open the door to more love and intimacy in birth and life. learn about female reproductive anatomy when you were growing up? Did you find your lessons to be lacking or missing crucial information, especially as you started to explore pleasure and arousal? Hi, I'm Deborah Pascali Bonaro, founder and director of Orgasmic Birth and the host of the Orgasmic Birth podcast. Today, we're joined by Rachel Gross. Rachel is an award-winning science journalist focusing on reproductive and sexual health based in Brooklyn, New York, a recipient of the McDowell Fellowship, Knight Science Journalism Fellowship, and a former digital science editor of Smithsonian Magazine. Rachel writes for the BBC Future, the New York Times, and Scientific American. She's also an experienced public speaker and panelist and has moderated congressional briefings on basic science, performed for the national storytelling show Story Collider, and hosted educational videos for Scientific American. And most recently, she's author of her new book, Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage, that I am so loving. Welcome, Rachel. I'm so excited to have you join us today. Hi, Deborah. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be on the podcast, and I love that you're loving the book. Well, your book is giving everyone and me an amazing historical look at the lack of understanding and also the way female anatomy has been shrouded in shame. Can you share some of that history? Yeah. So really, from the moment I started researching this book, I kept seeing terms around shame and stigma coming up again and again. And I think the earliest instance was Hippocrates himself, the original physician of ancient Greece, naming the female and male genitals the shame parts in ancient Greek, essentially. And this might make sense because there were all sorts of religious taboos around this area, but I kept seeing that repeated throughout time. So in the 1500s, um, a French anatomist dissected the human clitoris, and he decided to name it Membre Hantu, the shame part, again. And even today, we have words like pudendum, which are in all sorts of gynecological textbooks and medical texts. And it's kind of a more esoteric Latin word, but it's only recently been taken out of the global like anatomic dictionary. And again, it means the parts for which you should be ashamed. Uh, and you have like words in in like lay people language, like in German, you have Schamlippen, which means the shame lips, and that's labia. So even throughout the language, I think shame is really baked into the study of sexuality and genitals. And it does tend to be more on the female side than the male. It's so interesting, right? Like your book was so enlightening with all this history. And it made me kind of thinking back to my own sexuality. Like I really... 
I don't, as I was reading you presenting history, I thought of the lack of good quality sexual education and how it's really been my own seeking of information that I've learned so much more about the clitoris, the cervix, the vagina, and the labia. And your book has continued that for me. So can you share some of the discoveries that you learned and you present about the clitoris? Absolutely. And totally the same for me. I didn't get any of this in sex ed. I mostly got that I should be um, afraid of STDs, avoid getting pregnant. And at some point I would start bleeding, but I didn't know when and it would be shrouded in mystery. So I agree. It's been an ongoing adulthood journey of self-discovery. So as far as discoveries that anatomists and scientists have made, I do. I spend two chapters on the clitoris, which it's well worth it, as we all know. Yes, um, definitely. <laughs> yes. So and and kind of the first is about the glands clitoris, which even textbooks today sometimes still point to and just call the clitoris, whereas really it's equivalent to the head of the penis. So it's like, you know, less than 10% of the full organ, which has a shaft and two kind of three dimensional bulbs that hug the vagina and two arms that flare back into the pelvis. And this this is kind of the shape of the clitoris that is new to a lot of people. It was definitely like looked at and dissected and written about in, for instance, like the 1800s by German anatomists, but it just never caught on. So like textbooks tended to continue to erase and then bring back different parts of the clitoris and treat it as these kind of disparate fragments that weren't connected. And anatomists had to sort of lose and remember this anatomy over and over again. So what I found was that in the 1990s, there was the first female urologist in Australia, Dr. Helen O'Connell, kind of saw this, this huge lopsidedness in the teaching of clitoral anatomy. And she decided to dig much deeper and look at the whole history of this and use microdissection techniques and MRI imaging, which wasn't available 20 years before that. And she really mapped kind of the fullest picture of the clitoris that we had to date. And she kind of pieced together a lot of those older accounts that really hadn't made it to the present. And she called what she found, she said, well, first of all, this is an iceberg. And what you can see and feel, just the, the nub, is actually the tip of the iceberg. And the rest of it is just interacting really intimately with all these organs around it. So again, it's like hugging the vagina and all of these tissues are erectile and they engorge and they move the stuff around it. It's encircling the urethra and it's really touching everything. And so she suggested calling it the clitoral complex to really emphasize this is a unified whole and not just uh, parts floating around in space. Yeah, I love that. And are you seeing, is that going into kind of medical text now? Where are we in really incorporating that full understanding of the clitoral complex? Yeah, I see that it much more quickly disseminated thanks to like artists and pop culture and social media. So this shape and like cartoon versions of this shape, I kind of call it like a penguin spaceship. Um, it has like a little beak and the bulbs are kind of round. So it's very cute and fun. And so I think like, you know, I have clitoris jewelry in this shape and a, a lot of feminists really liked this, but um, it did take much longer to get into medical training, teaching and text. So I've seen it in the occasional 
like anatomy, like online learning program. It's just now beginning to be written into textbooks. So there are some new fuller diagrams that are better about showing the clitoral nerves and vasculature and like giving a bit more detail, whereas usually you might have like six pages on the penis and very little on the female side. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to say all, but it's very common. I've looked at a lot of like urology and gynecology textbooks like that. Um, Yeah, I think textbooks are really slow to change. I think it often takes like 20 years to incorporate new findings. And this is something that is kind of still being advocated for this idea of the clitoral complex. So it's definitely not like mainstream in medicine yet. And what's so sad is like, how does that leave, you know, female bodies, people that have clitorises, like how many people don't even fully understand what the clitoris offers them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I um, think that leaves us. I, I definitely, I mean, so many people that I've talked to in book talks or interviews have said like they either didn't know about the shape until like a year ago because they saw it in social media or they found it out from like an educational video that I did. And and I didn't know it before I started this work either. So I just want to be clear. It's like we're not taught this formally and it's not in most forms of sex ed. So it's definitely not our fault. But I think that realizing how extensive this organ is, at least for me, made me feel kind of like this was something active and dynamic and interconnected and just gave me like a sense of wholeness and helped me connect the sensations that I feel from different like forms of sexuality because you know there the since the clitoris wraps around the urethra and the vagina there is like sensitive like bundles of nerve tissue that are at the front on the belly side of the vagina what has sometimes been called the g-spot which is debatable and you can feel the clitoris through the vaginal walls depending on your anatomy because everybody is really varied and like the size and shape is really different for different people so i i think it does give you kind of this like nexus or kind of maybe mental image to make sense of what you're experiencing in your in your body right and i have to say i mean learning how extensive it was and also like that its sole purpose is pleasure right when you think of like many other things have multi-purpose i was just like wow like this is something everybody needs to know yeah it's like really great information and i think there's always debate and there's always scientists really interested in finding evolutionary function for the clitoris um, and either saying like, oh, it's a vestigial version of the penis or must have some function in reproduction and like getting sperm to the egg. And I just think that often is not the most interesting question or just misses the point um, and misses like a lot of what we haven't looked into about the clitoris, which is more about its extent and its function and like how it affects our embodied experience. Yeah, I agree. And so you went on and it's not just the clitoris, right? Like you talk about the cervix and the vagina. What what did you learn? What are we learning about those parts? Yeah, so the vagina was interesting. I thought that it would be the easiest um, part of the body to look into and maybe the easiest part of the book to write because it was already kind of a vagina book. But actually, there was just so little research and like baseline measurements on the human vagina. So exactly what happens to it during puberty and childbirth and after birth 
that was all really difficult to dig up. Um, it's as if researchers weren't as concerned with what happens to the female body once the baby's out and the function has been completed. So like we know that it's really resilient and dynamic and that it's doing a lot more than we thought. So the vagina is often called a multitasker. It's both this like muscular tube and it's also home to this incredible ecosystem of microbes that are helping defend against invaders and kind of protect this space um, between you and not you. And I really think of it as an ecosystem that's similar to your gut microbiome. And one of these new frontiers that scientists are looking at is, can you manipulate or kind of terraform the vaginal ecosystem for better protection, including during uh, pregnancy and birth? So fascinating, right? And I love your you're talking about that ecosystem because that also isn't like talked about. There's so many aspects here. And what about the cervix? Like I'm always so fascinated with the cervix, of course, because in birth, we do talk about it a lot and how it dilates and opens. But more recently, I've been learning so much more about the sensitivity and cervical orgasms. And so I feel like there's also a lot about the cervix that been left out that you identify? I don't know that I write that much on the cervix, honestly. I, I'm also really interested in how the cervix is affected by like hormones of pregnancy and how it dilates and how it does form one of these, these other kind of barriers or kind of in-between spaces in the body. But I, like, I know from speaking to people that a lot of people do experience like sexuality, pleasure in their cervix area, but I, I don't know much about that scientifically, honestly. <laughs> it's so fascinating, right? Like I like you say, there's we're learning so much, but I think there's still more. And and another aspect, you and I talked in a prior conversation a bit about that anatomy of arousal. And like here we have, we didn't know a lot about each individual part of the female reproductive system, but we definitely weren't talking about how they work together in pleasure and arousal. And I know you've said that this also is an emission, right? That these are dynamic organs and they're meant to swell and shift and lubricate with stimulation and chemical cues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right, right, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it is all about thinking, let me start that over. Right. I think that the lens really changes when you view this as a system that's working together, both in reproduction, but also in sexuality and arousal. So again, like it's not the vagina or the clitoris or the vagina and the clitoris. It's they're both intertwined. The clitoris is, you know, embedded in those walls and hugging it. And so as it is swelling, engorging with blood and becoming erectile, it's also putting pressure on those walls. And it's, you know, potentially like swelling up the parts around it, like the labia, and you might see reddening. So this and and lubrication, which is incredibly important, like an organ that can self-lubricate is really unique and really cool. And there's a whole process of physics going on there to get that lubrication into the vagina. So I like I do think the anatomy of arousal is awesome and it's not looked at enough because I just don't think it's been a priority for many of the researchers of the past. And see, when I think about this as you're talking, like lubrication and how they work together, opening of cervix, vagina, labia, 
clitoral nerves, all we're talking about, right? You know, my mind goes that these are all part of how we labor and birth and open to birth. So like, as you're doing this work, I can't help but think, how will this impact birthing people? Are you hearing any other discussions about bringing um, that lens in and looking at how we could help make birth easier and more pleasurable with that understanding? Yeah, I I love this connection. You really got me thinking about like a lot of these processes and functions are going on during birth. And like, I'm just thinking spatially of what's happening, the internal clitoris and particularly kind of the root where the arms come together again on like the front wall that is definitely getting friction or stimulation during birth. And yeah, it, it makes sense to me. So I did read a paper in my research that was by, it was in a midwifery journal, midwifery journal by a midwife. And it was about the role of the clitoris in birth. And I didn't know, you know, I hadn't looked into this, but I was really fascinated by the hypothesis that she was putting out, which was that this process of arousal is happening during vaginal birth and it's helping with lubrication, with creating oxytocin, um, because that is coming both from childbirth and from like forms of sexual behavior and stimulation. So yeah, like you said, this is all theoretically helpful to giving birth as well. And I think like you can't miss the fact that the clitoris is there and is potentially getting stimulated and something's happening. Um, I think obviously it depends what state you're in, how you experience that, because it's not just engorgement and stimulation. It's where like, are you feeling comfortable? Are you even focused on that? Are you full of drugs that are dampening these sensations? Yes, so true. I I really wonder as in the future, like your work is so pivotal, pivotal. So as people start learning and really bringing these connections, I just have to smile. I think it's going to open up so many more opportunities, not only for the way people give birth and what they know is available, but think about our caregivers. Like if every doctor, midwife, nurse knew about this, how would that change, right? Right. I think it does. I think you were saying this in an earlier conversation. I think it does bring into question some of these typical ways that we think birth should go. Because even I, in the back of my head, have this automatic reaction, like I haven't given birth, but I think I've definitely said the words like, just just give me the drugs in my head. Like that's <laughs> what I would want because that's it's kind of been indoctrinated into us at this point. Like you just want to be numb and you just want to get this over with. But maybe there are different, I mean, you know better than anyone, maybe there are different ways of doing this. And and could be including in the doctor's office, but taking into account the actual physiology and anatomy there instead of just thinking what's the most efficient way to get this baby out. Yeah, definitely. So much we can learn. Well, I have to ask you this because you did you've done so much incredible research and and what surprised you most? Was there something that was the biggest surprise in all your your research? Oh wow. I love this question. Um, I think at first, a lot of things were surprising. Like, what? They didn't find the clitoris until when? What? Like, men were arguing over what to name the clitoris. They named this after a man? 
Um, And then it became like progressively less surprising the farther I went on. But I will say kind of maybe an aha or like revelatory moment for me near the end of the book was realizing that this new generation of scientists who are looking at all these organs, so like the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, the uterus, the vagina, the clitoris, they are all coming with this lens of wholeness, interconnectedness, immunity. And that's part of what's allowing them to see what's happening very differently. So, you know, um, a lot of people are familiar with the egg and the sperm story and how in the past it was often described as the kind of aggressive heroic sperm that swims and finds the sedentary egg. And feminist scholars and biologists have really if, if not turn that around, really like rebalance the situation to show that the egg is actually putting out like chemical messengers and making a lot of active moves to attract and get that sperm to her. And one of my favorite facts is that without the female fluids, the reproductive tract, sperm are literally incompetent. They cannot capacitate and cannot get to the egg or get into it. So these sorts of lenses are rewriting how we think about the female body. And that really extends to every organ. So thinking of the uterine lining as regenerative and really an organ that remakes itself every month for many people and then kind of violently cuts off its blood supply and sheds and then remakes itself again and is possibly learning how to do that better and better. Um, I think these are the kind of really cool, like kind of frame shifting moments that really got me thinking in the book. Ah. That's so beautiful. And I love that new information, right, about the egg and fertilization. So beautiful. So as we're talking about this, right, my mind keeps going back to like, I I wanted this when I was young, you know, like why imagine how things would be different if this information was accessible in sex ed when people were young and just beginning to understand more their bodies and their sexuality. Do you have any tips of that you would give to parents or schools in integrating this? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not in school, so I, I know it's tough to be a sex educator or a parent. And I know that this stuff is nuanced, but I, I do feel that what I know of sex ed in this country, although a lot of it is changing and there are really good programs being put out that are really like inclusive and LGBTQ friendly and kind of more mindful and aware of the fact that sex and gender are a spectrum and not just a binary. I, yes. Yeah. So I think that's really crucial to revolutionizing both like sex ed and anatomy training is breaking down that binary, which like this field has been particularly entrenched in. But I also do think that, you know, many of the women and girls that I've talked to received sex ed as this form of kind of fear mongering, teaching them to be afraid of their reproductive systems and their sexuality and teaching them what they had to look out for and avoid. So again, like pregnancy, STDs, and then how to manage things like bleeding and menstruation that weren't fully explained, just that blood was going to come out and now you can make a baby or now you're a woman. And it also might happen in your third period class and nobody knows when. So I really think we can do better than that. I think that on the male side, you've kind of always had pleasure and like 
kind of, it's been more wrapped in, it's kind of in the full experience because they've had to talk about wet dreams and ejaculation and often masturbation um, because it's all wrapped up and there's the same organ doing a lot of it. And I think on the female side, first of all, we need to be way more like pleasure positive and talk about your body as like something beautiful to explore and have curiosity about rather than starting with a place of fear. And I also think that there's such cool science going on in your body as it's changing throughout puberty. Like just what I mentioned, the fact that the lining of the uterus is doing this crazy stuff and remaking itself every month. The fact that, yeah, the ovaries, the eggs are actually like pretty much battling with each other every month as well and trying to inhibit each other from growing because 20 to 30 start growing and only one is going to be ovulated. So you talk about sperm competition, there's definitely like competition happening in ovaries too. So these kind of stories and this kind of wonder and awe at what your body is doing for you, I feel like is a much better and more appealing starting place get kids engaged in their own changing bodies before you move on to all of those warnings uh, and the fear. I agree with you. Mine was fear-based too. And I just, as you were talking, I can feel my heart just feeling so full, how wonderful it will be for all young people to have a full knowledge, you know, of all bodies and really exploring what's possible. And I also... I just have to, and I was thinking back in, in reading your book too, you have several stories. Actually, I was pretty much aghast about how female masturbation was viewed and even gadgets. And I never knew that things produced to actually stop young girls, young women from masturbating. And like, can you just say a bit about that? Because I was like, I had to put the book down at one point and go, like walk away and yell, you know, just like, I can't um, believe it. Yes, I I had that reaction too. Yeah, especially when I was looking into Freud and his very problematic ideas about the quote vaginal orgasm and quote clitoral orgasm. I found that it was so much larger than just Freud or just one culture or time period. It was like throughout the 1800s and early 1900s in like America and Europe, there was this masturbation panic and there were so many crazy ways that were developed to stop kids masturbating. And it was seen as like a disease, something that would cause degeneration, even like mental issues. And so there were contraptions that held their legs apart. And actually one of the craziest things I came across was John Harvey Kellogg um, of Kellogg Cornflakes was yes. a doctor. Uh-huh. And he was extremely anti-masturbation and he suggested like putting acid on the clitoris or the penis like boys were not left out and he suggested forms of genital cutting and this was in like widely read popular books in the U.S. so it's it's not like it was some fringe thing like this again this kind of sense of shame was really baked in for a long time and it had real effects like that's terrifying and horrible for children to go through or be afraid of. It's also horrifying to think that doing something natural and pleasurable could lead to mental degeneration or, you know, your soul not going to heaven. Like that instills so much fear and shame of your own body. And I think that's like, that's the long history we have to undo. Right. And that's what I like so appreciate is that you're opening us up to look at like 
there's history that we might all be bringing to it that we're not even aware of. Like I wasn't aware of some of these things and yet I'm sure that they influenced my grandmother or my grandparents, you know? And so these things that were either passed down through words or sometimes just not talking about it, the lack of education, the lack of talking, silence can speak louder than words, right? Around these things. So you're giving such a powerful voice to unpack that for each person and then to really open up this important discussion. So as we come to the end, I know there's so much we could talk for forever, but is there one other thing that you feel is really important for our listeners, especially considering that many of them may be pregnant or working with pregnant people and bodies for how they consider sexuality? Mm. I mean, pregnant people, your bodies are an amazing, amazing uh, whole, an amazing interconnected unit. And I'm in awe of what the human body can do during this time period. The fact that organs shift around, bone shifts, cartilage stretches, and like it all like knows what to do. I think that's still a total wonder to me. And again, I've been looking at the science of this for four years. And yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious to hear people's experiences with how their sexuality and even their anatomy changes during this period, which again, I think is a real gap in our knowledge. And I, you know, hope to write on that in the future. And I would love to learn more about people's subjective experiences. I read these little lines in textbooks that are like, well, the clitoris can change size and shape during childbirth and and stay that way. And I want to hopefully like piece together some of that info so that we all have some baseline knowledge to start with and are not starting from scratch. But yeah, keep exploring and enjoy the journey. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. I could go on and on, but Tell us, everyone, how can they best contact you? I'm sure many want to follow you and read your books and articles. Oh, that would be great. So my Twitter is at Rachel E. Gross, R-A-C-H-E-L-E, Gross as in ew. And my website is www.rachelegross.com. And those are probably the easiest ways. And please reach out. You can email me through my website. And I'm always interested in hearing experiences around pleasure, birthing, and anatomy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deborah, for having me. This was this was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. And for everyone listening, all of Rachel's information will be below in the show notes too. And Rachel, we look forward to that. What's next? I'm really looking forward to the next article. Maybe we'll do more around birth because I'd love to have you explore more of orgasmic birth too. Yeah, I would love to too. I think this sounds like a future collaboration. Okay, thank you so much. Great, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about pleasure in birth parenting and birth work, visit orgasmicbirth.com forward slash more for my free gifts. And please leave a review about your experience. Reviews help us to reach more people and please subscribe. Subscribe.